Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, weary traveler. Need a short rest? Oh, I see. They said you'd be showing up about now. Come on, through the portal. Best not keep the Lord Mistress and more Master waiting. You know how they get. Robots Radio presents The Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. The best way for everyone from experienced dungeon masters to those curious about D&D to learn more about the worlds, creatures, and lore of Dungeons and Dragons. Hello and welcome to the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. My name is Sergio. I will be your lore master for the evening. It's here. It's finally here after years of speculation and months of anticipation and weeks of diving into the lore from advanced D&D days. Planescape 5th edition has finally arrived. I was able to grab a early access thanks to getting the um, physical and digital bundle from D&D Beyond and I've been pouring over the uh, the digital version for the past 10 days or so and I'm gonna go ahead I'm gonna dive into some of the some of the lore some of the the tweaks and changes um, and then I'll, I'll finish off talking about gate towns which are really cool and then um, before wrapping up uh, covering some of the mechanics the uh, the the feats the backgrounds and, and the spells but first and foremost, I want to go ahead and give my early review before we before we get into everything else. And if you want to know what I think about Planescape, and, and if you've been listening to our Planescape episodes over the past few weeks, you know that I am a huge Planescape fan. I love the setting so much. I think it's probably the apex, the pinnacle of D&D design. Um, I think it's, if you want to show anyone what ttrpgs or really what what D is capable of because ttrpgs you know is, is so malleable and it can do almost anything however you know D has you know kind of is it has to has to do a certain thing and has to has to please as many people as possible um without you know with without alienating too many people and so as a result it's it, it's kind of stuck there and, I, and i'll discuss more of that as i talk about 
you know, how I feel, how I feel about 5e, but you know, it, the Planescape, the original version, I feel is, is the best idea, the best, you know, example of what D&D while still, you know, remaining within the box that D&D has to be in for, for one reason or another, what it can be. And so my reading over the, the fifth edition book over the past week and a half or so, I, this is how I feel about it. I obviously, you know, have a special place in my heart for the original version. And do I think 5e is as good? I do not. However, do I think, and that's, I mean, it's, it would have, it would, it was a hard task to, to, um, to overcome. It was a hard, uh, you know, obstacle to overcome to be better than the original, in my opinion. But is it something that will add and, you know, continue is something that adds immediately will continue to add to fifth edition going in, you know, now and into the future. Absolutely. 100%. You know, this is a box set that you can tell the people that, that were you know, behind it love Planescape and they, and, and they try to, as much as they could, you know, having to stay within this D and D box that they have to stay in, you know, because, now they're not just beholden to the gamers, but they're beholden to, you know, corporate bosses. You know, they're uh, beholden to Hasbro and they're beholden to stockholders. So they have to, you know, while still trying to be as creative as possible, still trying to sell and make as much money as possible. And so sometimes, you know, those two overlap in great ways. Sometimes they don't. And I think Planescape is a really good example of that overlapping in a very good way. Um, but like I said, like the, one of the main reasons I love Planescape is in, and dark sun for that example, uh, from the AD and D days is that it, it looks so different from standard D and D, you know, when you, when you think standard D and D, you think, um, like Larry Elmore, you know, his artwork is, it was seminal to, you know, um, to what D and D looked like, you know, like his work on, on Dragonlance and his work and his the cover of the um the the basic set is probably the mo- one of the most recognizable images from D&D history but you know Dark Sun Planescape didn't look like that at all it had its own look had its own vision and that was what what was really appealing to me and and unfortunately you know 5E the the artwork in Planescape 5E is sort of you know it's in that same vein that all 5e artwork is and it's the five the artwork is is lovely it's fantastic the artists you know really did you know did their best but it you know there's nothing sets it apart from from everything else that we've seen before and that's you know and that's you know that's a minor quibble you know it's still great art but not you know not what i was hoping for uh however the maps that come with the box set that's where um, that's you kind of get a little bit of the old Planescape feel from that, and so I really love the maps. The, the maps are dope. So that's how I feel about Planescape Five E. You know, I think it's really good. Is it great? Um, you know, maybe. And here's the thing: like, again, like it's hard for me to, you know, to compare, and you know, then because I have the the love for the original version so much. This version of Planescape for them might be what the original Planescape is to me. The original version of Planescape is to me. 
And I, I, I don't think that's, you know, out of the realm of possibility. Like I said, this is really well put together. Um, if you look at other reviews online and, um, and I tend to do that just because, you know, I love D&D so much. And sometimes I can look through it with some rose colored glasses and kind of overlook the, um, the faults and the the weaknesses a little too much. Um, just because, you know, I, 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 I just love it so much. Kind of like, you know, when your band, your favorite band puts out a not great song and you're like, ah, eh, well, it's not, you know, it's, it's all right. It's pretty good. But so sometimes when I find myself, you know, really enjoying something, I want to, I have to just be sure like, it, do, am I really enjoying this because it's, it's good or am I just enjoying it because it's something that I already love. And so, um, I feel like that was, uh, the case in Spelljammer. I was so excited for Spelljammer and, you know, just having it in my hand and, and going through it, you know, it was really fun to go through. And then after I was able to really examine it, I'm like, man, this is really, this is kind of bare bones. The The adventure is pretty by the numbers. It's not, doesn't really take advantage of the Spelljammer campaign setting, which is what you would want from a adventure centric, you know, um, from a from an adventure that is you know comes with the campaign setting you know from a, a I'm sorry a campaign centric adventure and so uh so I checked out a couple of reviews of early reviews of the Planescape and they were pretty much uh saying what 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 I was thinking is that it's it's really good uh it it does have its fault it does have its weaknesses and we'll get into that as well um but it's really good it's a, it's a uh, much better than than Spelljammer was and uh, hopefully more of, you know, an indication of what we will see in the future as far as, you know, the creativity um, from the adventures and campaign settings. And hopefully, you know, um, maybe more supplements that we might see. I know that um, that Watsi has mentioned that they're not forget that, you know, they're not haven't forgotten about the campaign settings that they've released. They haven't forgotten about Ravenloft or or Dragonlance or even Spelljammer. And that that's something in the future that they want to continue to provide content for rather than just putting it out and then kind of forgetting about it. And like, you know, just allowing the homebrew community to sort of do their job for them sort of thing. But so that, yeah, that's how I feel about Planescape. That being said, let's get into some of the lore behind the book. And like I said, we'll talk about that. We'll hit the middle of the show and then we'll come back with um, the gate towns and a little bit of the mechanics. So Rule of threes. When things happen, they happen in threes. You might not always be able to perceive or understand how events are related, but somewhere, sometime, or somehow, every action has two partners. Often, this isn't worth worrying about. Other times, nothing matters more. So a little bit of lore about the sort of philosophy behind Planescape, which I love. Uh, Sigil is the crossroads of the multiverse, a city at the center of the Great Wheel, and it's connected to every plane of existence, uh, every infinite world among them. The City of Doors brims with travel, commerce, people, places, things, uh, schemes, and adventure. Sigil is commonly referred to as the cage because the only way in or out of the city is through one of its countless portals. And these portals are controlled by the Lady of Pain. Sigil simultaneously exists at the center of the Great Wheel and also nowhere. It's in the middle of the Outlands. It has an impossibly tall needle of a mountain, which is known as a spire, which rises into the sky. 
Sigil floats above the apex of the spire. Barely visible from the ground, it's constructed on the inside of a massive stone torus. And I remember discussing the original Planescape and um, not knowing what a torus was, having to look it up. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of like a, like, a, like a hollow donut. <laughs> Attempts to ascend the city by climbing or by flight are futile as our efforts to reach the top of the spire. So, so far, nothing has really changed too drastically. You know, Sigil's still the backstage of the multiverse. There is a bit more emphasis on the multiverse this time around, although there's definitely talk of it in the in previous in the previous edition. Uh, you know, this is a place where celestials and fiends share drinks in a genie-owned tavern, where agents of evil gods trot through the streets alongside nightmares, where um, hags stable fairy steeds along Pegasi and beasts of living stone. You know, as a result of this mingling, they're the fundamentally incapable or, in, I'm sorry, incompatible parts of the multiverse come into direct contact. They don't always fight. They don't always get into it. But when they do, you know, there are authorities that maintain order and stifle this sort of peril. Uh, but much like in the original edition, the Lady of Pain doesn't really concern herself with stuff like that. It's only when these eruptions threaten the city on a grand scale does she intervene. Humans are the earliest known inhabitants of the City of Doors. Some sages track the existence and spread of humans back to Sigil itself, you know, rather than some grand uh, plan or grand scheme of, of a deity uh, or some other creations. Various factions handle the day-to-day -day governance of Sigil, uh, the enforcements of laws, the maintenance of uh, civic infrastructure, and these groups each follow their own personal philosophy that's inspired by some sort of cosmic as aspect of the multiverse, and they actively recruit visitors and citizens into their ranks. Again, the factions portion of Planescape is something that's not new. It was definitely a major part of the original edition, and that's, um, to me, one of the um, weaknesses of fifth edition is that they don't really go into the factions too much. They um, you know, whereas each faction um, was pretty extensively covered in the original edition, this, you know, in 5e, they get about a page or so. And that's something that we will definitely talk about in the middle of the show, a way to to um, help alleviate that weakness, a way to strengthen the factions within your Planescape campaign, uh, something that we will definitely discuss. So there are... Gods, obviously, godlike figures. There are devils, archdevils, you know, demon lords. They can't enter Sigil, no matter how powerful they are, by any means. Lady of Pain forbids it. In fact, one of the most famous adventures in D&D history, it pretty much signals the end of second edition and the transition to third edition. It's uh, Vecna somehow manages to get into Sigil. Through some, you know, through some sh zany shenanigans, some some wacky machinations, and nearly puts an end to the multiverse as a result. And so, the Lady of Pain forbids any god or godlike figures, any archdevils, any demon lords, from entering the city. However, that doesn't mean that their schemes and their influence can't still find their way through their agents. 
And how do they, how do you get in? We mentioned the portals, right? So Sigil boasts more planar portals than any other location in the multiverse. These innumerable doors link locations in Sigil to destinations on any other plane or somewhere else just in the city. You know, you can literally go anywhere from Sigil. Uh, Any opening in the city of doors might be one of these magic gateways. But these portals aren't always open. Instead, they only open at certain times or when a a particular condition is met. Uh, This is maybe in response to a command word or a phrase or when a traveler is holding a particular object, which is known as a portal key. When a creature with a portal key crosses a portal's threshold, the portal will remain open until the start of that creature's next turn. So portals are usually invisible when they're inactive. And that's uh, including um, using a detect magic spell. Wouldn't be able to use that. But they can be detected by the true scene or the warp ascent spell, which is one of the new spells that we'll discuss at the end of the show. When a portal activates, it typically becomes outlined in light with its destination visible beyond. So standard, you know, like portal imagery, you know, like a little sort of like aura. And then you can actually see where you'll be going through that, you know, through the other side. A portal key can be any sort of object or um, particular key created for that portal. Keys often bear some symbolic connection to their destination. You know, it'll like, like a silver sphere for the astral plane or um, a length of chain for Carceri or a white lily for Elysium. You know, the key functions on either side of a portal, be it, you know, in Sigil or its destination. And there, one thing that I do love about the 5e Planescape box set is it's got tables for days. You can easily roll up, you know, what a door looks like, uh, what the portal key looks like, you know, where the door leads to. It's, It's really cool. I love me a random table. And sometimes, and this is much more rare, but sometimes portal keys aren't objects. They can be something... Like a, it can be something as simple as a type of creature, or they can be something a little bit, you know, more peculiar, like a memory in the traveler's mind or a whistled tune. So who runs the show? The Lady of Pain runs the show. The greatest entity in Sigil is the Lady of Pain. She is an eternal being who watches over the cage. She appears almost human, like humanoid, human-like, although she most definitely isn't. She wears these ornate robes that shroud her body and a mantle of blades coated in this sort of bluish-green verdigris that surrounds her... I mean, is it it's a face? Is it a mask? Is it, is it her face itself? Is it, you know, is, it's, un, it's unknown because no one knows... You know, no one knows for sure who or what exactly the Lady of Pain is, but it's widely accepted that she is a being on power or on par with deity. Like her power rivals that of any god. I mean, obviously, if she's able to keep gods and the like from entering Sigil, then, you know, she's she obviously she has some power. You know, she's got some, you know, she's she's up in her weight class. But what's the difference between her and gods, though, 
is that she forbids people following her. She forbids followers of her own. And to worship her is more than taboo. It is an unforgivable crime punishable by imprisonment in the mazes. Again, this is something that this this lore isn't different from the from the early days. This stays almost the exact same. And I, and I love it because it was one of my favorite parts of the original lore. You know, the lady maintains the cosmic neutrality of Sigil. The city doesn't take part in the blood war. It doesn't throw its weight, you know, behind the shining righteousness of Mount Celestia or contracts originating in the Nine Hells. And it is never a battleground for conflicts of the prime material worlds. On rare occasions, the Lady of Pain can be seen drifting through the streets, hovering above the ground. Creatures that interfere with her are flayed by her stare or vanish into nothingness as she turns to face them. So, as such, wise travelers give the lady a wide berth, finding more pressing business elsewhere as she passes by. I could just imagine Lady of Pain floating down a street in Sigil and everyone all of a sudden like trying to figure out like, you know, what's on the bottom of their shoe or, you know, looking at the sky like, oh, it look, might look like rain. I don't know. Uh, some locals claim that the lady's features occasionally take on a golden or, or steely sheen. Whether this is in response to threats to her city or some kind of other influence is a mystery. She's viewed with fearful awe by the residents of Sigil. A distant guardian, she leaves the city's daily governance to the many factions that call it home. She has no residence and no temples to her exist within the city. The Lady of Pain is omnipresent, unknowable, and invincible. With a look, she can flints troublesome creatures to within an inch of their lives. Uh, flints means to slice the skin or fat, especially from like a carcass or like like from that of a whale. Um, so yeah, you, that's another thing I love about D&D. It will definitely boost up the vocab. Uh, so any creature that targets her for some reason, some unthinkable reason, with some kind of attack or spell or any other kind of hostile or prying effect. In some cases, so much as speaking to her is assailed by an overwhelming pain and immediately drops to one hit point. If that creature then hasn't learned its lesson, the lady sends it to the mazes in the next blink. There is no stat block for the lady of pain. She is beyond the ability of any characters to defeat by conventional means. And I know as a D&D community, we love to homebrew, um, but by no means homebrew a stat block for the Lady of Pain. Just have, have her be as she is. And as she is, is, in my opinion, perfect. So let's talk really quickly about the uh, the section the sections of Figgle, the factions of Sigil. So there are twelve major factions that have risen to prominence in the city of Doors, though many more exist. The PC you create for a Planescape campaign or adventure, you might belong to one of these groups or some other ideological faction. You know, maybe one that you create. 
but there are 12 that are described or 12 major factions that are described in the box set. And many of them are from the original 2E uh, setting. We have Athar, who believe that deities are frauds and merely channel the might of a true higher power. There is the Black Cabal, who believe that there is no greater truth to the multiverse. Each being must discover their own meaning. There is the Doom Guard. Nothing lasts forever. The purpose of everything is to crumble and decay. There are the Faded, who believe that everyone makes their own fate, and they are entitled to whatever they can take and hold. They're the governors, the fraternity of order. All of existence is governed by laws, and power comes from understanding them and exploiting them. There are the hands of havoc, those who try to impose a single order on the multiverse are doomed to fail. There are the harmonium. The multiverse will be perfect only when everything is acting in harmony, whether it wants to or not. There are the heralds of dust who believe that everyone is already dead and the entirety of the multiverse is just the afterlife and that undeath holds the key to the next stage of existence. There are the mercy killers, cold, relentless, Justice is absolute, and no one is above it. There is the mind's eye, who believe that the multiverse exists to be explored, that it shapes us, and that we, in turn, shape it. There is the sensates, the society of sensation. Sensation is the proof of existence. By experiencing anything, or everything rather, we can understand the multiverse in all of its complexity. And then the transcendent order who believe that thoughts cloud actions. And in order to fall in step with the multiverse, one must act on instinct alone. So there were a couple of original factions from the from 2E that didn't make the cut, it seems like. Uh, you had the Believers of the Source, a.k.a. the Godsmen, uh, and also the Chaosmen, the uh, Chaosatex, Zeosatex, however you pronounce it. Um, and then the Free League, or the in-depths, the sort of independence one, they are now a minor faction in, in 5e. And a couple other new minor factions are Encantarium, uh, those who consume magic and its secrets. They have a headquarters uh, located in the Tower Sorceress, and they are aligned with the Astral Plane. Uh, some of its members include mages or lore seekers, scribes, uh, they're in a faction that was thought dead when its headquarters uh, vanished along with all known incantifers. Most thought the tower was banished to the mazes, but it has since returned, rematerializing in the vacant lot where it once stood, bringing with it the return of the incantifers. Members of the incantarium siphon magic from items, spells, and those who wield them to lengthen their own lifespans. They believe that by absorbing magic and mastering its rules, one can rewrite reality. Another new minor faction are the ring givers. Those who give as much as they get. Now they are aligned with Isgard and they are run by Jeremo the Natterer. And its members include altruists, beggars, and philanthropists. They are a direct foil to the very selfish fated who believe that you know whatever they can get they are entitled to if they can hold on to it 
whereas the ring givers hold the philosophy of charity and giving as the path to enlightenment. The bargainers give away all that they have and then redistribute the hordes of greedy tycoons to the poor and needy. A common superstition in Sigil holds that any gift to the ring givers comes back to the donor tenfold. And there are a couple of the factions who um, are basically renamed. For example, the 5e Hands of Havoc sound a lot like Second Edition's Revolutionary League. You know, they were also known as the Anarchists. So the faction known as Hands of Havoc, who believe that, uh, you know, we free society through chaos, sounds, you know, very similar, you know, because its members include anarchists, uh, arsonists, and freedom fighters. The Hands of Havoc are a controlled burn, a collection of radical individualists united under the banner of change. They want to set fire to outdated and oppressive institutions, letting the ashes pave the way for something new. The Hands of Havoc are champions of freedom and self-expression. Artists decorate bland buildings and forlorn, forlorn structures throughout Sigil with bold murals in avant-garde styles. The passion of their ideology fuels artistic innovation, sparking trends in writing, music, and dance that spread throughout the city. Having an official role in Sigil is somewhat, you know, incongruous with the faction's philosophy. Instead, its members, also known as reekers, you know, those who reek, um, not like not like reek as in smell bad, but like like wreak havoc. Um, anyway, so its members, the Reekers, masquerade as members of other factions, keeping tabs in case those factions grow too powerful and need dismantlement. Um, also, a very similar 5e faction, who is probably just a reskin uh, of a 2e faction, are the Heralds of Dust. Sounds a lot like the Dustmen, aka the Dead, from 2e, because the Heralds of Dust are those who believe everyone is already dead. Their factual is uh, Skull, and they are aligned with Hades. And its members usually include uh, the grief-stricken, the undead, and corpse collectors. Now, I don't know at what point. At what point do you collect enough corpses that you then become a corpse collector? Like, if I just if I just collect... I mean... If I just get one corpse, is is that is that enough? Do I have to get three or, you know, is it like, now you really need a solid dozen corpses before anyone takes you seriously as a collector? I don't, I, I someone find that out for me, please. I'm too busy reading about Planescape. I, I can't bother myself with the minutia of corpse collecting. So the Heralds of Dust believe that the multiverse itself is an afterlife, a shadow of some other existence long past, and that every creature is already dead. That the life that we cling to is simply the first stage of death, and it's the it's factual. The the factual is whoever leads the faction, uh, goes by the name Skull, and is an evil lich, which makes sense that that they would be the factual of this particular faction. In fact, they are the oldest factual in Sigil. Again, not surprising that an undead lich is the oldest. Of, of all the factals. He's the founder of the Heralds of Dust 
and has yet to transcend his current existence, lingering to guide as many souls as possible along the path to true death. Skull strives to know everything and feel nothing. That's, I feel you on that one. Uh, he makes a generous use of adventurers to gather knowledge or help lay the dead to rest with dignity. We've also got Mind's Eye, who seem to be an updated version of the sign of one faction, because they are the ones who grow to godhood. The Mind's Eye see experience and exploration as the means of fully realizing one's own potential. And so by taking in the challenges and the wonders of the multiverse, individuals can leverage their perspectives and insights to not only improve themselves, but to also shape reality as they see fit. As a result, growth and understanding are the keys to the mind's eye philosophy. So members advocate for uh, learning based on observation, experiment, experimentation instead of formal study. Every seeker, which, which is what the mind's eye members are called, practices some craft to shape their experiences into something new and refine themselves in turn. In the great foundry, the mind's eye oversees the creation of tools and parts that most take for granted. And they are being guided by Saladrin, who is a elf archmage. She rarely sojourns beyond Sigil anymore, sacrificing her own journey of personal discovery to lead the mind's eye. She focuses uh, her energy on creation, practicing many crafts she's learned in the cent her centuries of life. Now, if you want to create your own faction, it does provide a small section for that as well. It says in Sigil, ideologies wax and wane over time, gaining popularity and drawing like-minded philosophers from one faction to another. The only constant in the City of Doors, after all, is the Lady of Pain herself. So if you'd like to create or be a part of your own faction, you should adhere to some of the following guidelines. A core philosophy centered on an assumption or fundamental truth about the multiverse or its workings. Uh, a building, a physical building that serves as the faction's headquarters within Sigil, within the city of doors. And a faction leader, again, like also known as a factal, who embodies the faction's belief. So if you want to dive more into creating your own faction, Listen up for the middle of the show. We will be covering something in our homebrew corner that I do believe you will be interested in. We'll be right back. Hey there, Dungeon Masters. Ever wished for a tool to help design your worlds and campaigns? Introducing Epic World Builder, the app that turns those dreams into reality. Craft intricate dungeons populate with creatures from the abyss, or cities with secrets hidden around every corner. Join a community of dreamers and world builders sharing and exploring each other's creations. Create your free campaign today with EpicWorldBuilder.com. EpicWorldBuilder.com, where your world comes to life. Welcome to the middle of the show. We do all of our housekeeping stuff here, so let's just dive right into it. Thank you to all the listeners. Thank you to the patrons, thank you for supporting the show in the way that you do. The listeners, thank you for um, giving me that uh, endorphin kick whenever I see how many folks have, have downloaded and listened to uh, the episodes. Uh, to the patrons, thank you for supporting the show in the way that you do. 
Uh, thank you for following us on our social medias. We're at DND Lorecast pretty much everywhere. Uh, all your micro uh, message, my, micro blogging uh, apps, X slash Twitter, whatever, uh, Blue Sky, Mastodon, all that stuff. Uh, Twitch, Instagram, TikTok. Just thank you so much for all the love and support. You can, um, all the communication on the Discord, all the all the conversations that we have there. It's, uh, you know, this is this is like a dream come true. Being, a, being you know, cultivating and and, and nurturing this community of D and D fans that you know, so we can talk about D and D all the time. That's something that I've always wanted since I discovered this amazing game, and uh, I couldn't I couldn't be happier with it. So thank you so much. Um, if you want to support the show via Patreon, you can absolutely do so. Just go to patreon.com slash dndlorecast. There's a link in the show notes and uh, sign up for one of the tiers. Each of them have their uh, own cool, like, you know, b- bonus perks that come along with it. And uh, hopefully in the future, we'll have even more stuff that we can, uh, that we can use to give back to the community. As far as D and D news goes um, there. And I, I find this, um, you know, very interesting and, and kind of funny considering there was a bit of a kerfuffle uh, within the TTRG, RG, the TTRPG space. Uh, I think just last week that apparently D and D will be effectively killed within bookstores uh, because of a recent um, distribution move that, that Watsi made. Um, and I just, like I said, I find it funny considering that uh, Penguin Random House will be publishing Jalais Johnson's Dungeons and Dragons novel, The Fallbacks, Bound for Ruin, um, next uh, next year, March 5th, 2024. The Fallbacks, Bound for Ruin, introduces a team of five adventurers inspired by the classic D&D character classes, including a rogue, a fighter, a wizard, a cleric, and a bard, and their pet at Yug, Uggy. Set in the Forgotten Realms setting, the book tells how this inexperienced party is hired to recover a spellbook from a lost temple, only for their patron to turn up murdered. Discovering that the book has a mind of its own, they are forced to flee and try to clear their name. So yeah, we've got a brand new D&D book coming out uh, just in the next five months or so, March 5th, 2024. And so I I do believe that the reports of D&D, uh, the, the, the reports of D&D in a bookstore's death have been uh, wildly exaggerated. Get a new D&D novel in the next five months or so. That sounds awesome. Okay, so now homebrew shenanigans. Now, we've, we're talking about factions within Planescape. And, you know, it, it provided some very bare bones guidelines for how to create your own. If you are very interested in not only creating your own faction, like something that will stand the test of time that you could use in a campaign or several campaigns many times over that could likely be used by one of your players who starts their own campaign, then you have to check out the Traveler's Guide to Factions. This is from the folks over at Tabletop Journeys, and we actually spoke with them a few weeks ago about this. They just launched the Kickstarter about two weeks ago. Still got about two weeks left to go. And it is everything you could hope for when it comes to uh, not only in, not only having homebrew factions that you can easily you know pop into your Planescape campaign setting, but also 
they will go through it, it gives you the guidelines beyond just you know three simple you know oh well you know make sure it has a philosophy and make sure it has a building and make sure it has a leader they get into the nitty-gritty of creating your own faction the traveler's guide to factions will add depth to your world setting or your character's backstory it brings you all the tools that you need to make your next role legendary. It has nine fully detailed factions that can be used in any campaign, including Planescape, and can be tailored to fit multiple genres and time periods. While the included stat blocks are 5e compatible, the system agnostic lore takes you deep within the foundations of each faction and provides guidance on how to seamlessly integrate them into your settings game system. Plus, like I said, the book includes an entire chapter containing all the tips, tricks, and processes you need to craft your own faction. Combine all of that with amazing art that has been commissioned by human artists, actual human beings who draw. Uh, this is sure to be a book that you don't want to miss. Like I said, the Kickstarter is live now, about two weeks left to go. You can get a PDF copy of this for only $19. Myself, I had to, one, support the game, support support my bros over at TTJ, and also um, scratch the itch of physical D&D and TTRPG media. Uh, I opted for the digital, for the PDF and um, physical bundle, but for only 19 bucks, you can have a copy of this. And like I said, if you are interested at all, and playing uh, using Planescape or even just you know world building, this is an amazing tool that is at your disposal now. So definitely check it out. There's a link to that in the show notes, and also check out uh, the conversation that we had with the TTR uh, the, or the TTJ guys just a couple weeks ago. Um, we we talked a little bit about the Traveler's Guide to Factions, but really we just like nerded out over our love for tabletops. And if that isn't you know um, as uh, good enough commercial for any any kind of content they create that i don't i don't know what is but so check it out it's um going to be worth your while that being said let's jump back into the planescape lore Welcome back to the show. We're going to finish up the show talking a little bit about the Outlands, some gate towns, and then some of the new mechanics, including backgrounds and spells and stuff like that from Planescape 5e. It's finally here. We finally get our hands on it. Okay, so the Outlands, they are a plane of concordant opposition, a disc-shaped plane of perfect neutrality at the center of the outer planes. Anything and everything can flourish on this impartial and balanced canvas. It's a broad region whose boundless terrain blends to match the extreme forces that shape it. Arid, flame-scarred plains give way to heroic mountain ranges sculpted in the likenesses of gods. Moldy caverns ruled by sapient fungi, bottomless seas, and just about anything else that makes for great adventures. Say, you know, except for the domains of gods, save for those, realms in the Outlands are subject to a planar phenomenon known as cosmic realignment. When a location embodies the nature of one of the outer planes too closely, 
that plane absorbs the location and its inhabitants, restoring balance to the outlands and expanding that plane. Some creatures combat this, combat this cosmic realignment by acting in direct opposition to the linked plane's temperament, while others welcome this fate or pursue it outright. Now, there are 16 evenly spaced towns that lie along the edge of the outlands. They are equal distance from the, to the spire, and each is constructed around a portal to one of the outer planes. These gate towns are dramatically influenced by the realms that they border, and the towns and their inhabitants vary wildly from one another, mirroring many of the extreme characteristics of their respective planes of influence. So let's talk about a couple of these. Like I said, there are 16 of them. You know, these might end up being uh, like TikTok videos, perhaps, um, or maybe full-blown uh, episodes, or at least maybe Patreon Plus installments, something. We got to talk about all of these. But for right now, we're just going to talk about three of them. There is Plague Mort. The gate destination in this gate town is the infinite layers of the abyss. And as a result, its primary citizens are demons and humanoids. And it is ruled by Archlector Bex. Might and treachery rule in Plague Mort, an autocratic cesspool teetering on the unhallowed brink of the abyss. Rotting shacks, crumbling stone edifices, and derelict streets lie in the shadow of a silvery keep atop a gray hill. An imposing fortress of demonic construction, light steel keep, towers over the broken town that encircles it, separated by a bubbling moat of black ichor. From within its walls, an iron-hoofed tyrant, Archlector Bex, lords over Plague Mort and its despicable townfolk, even as they plot against him. So sounds lovely and delightful. You can see why, if you've been listening to the show and you are familiar with my sensibilities, you can see why of the 16, I definitely decided to talk about this one. Uh, trust has no place here. The citizens of Plague Mort are a sinister lot, traitors eagerly, eagerly awaiting the chance to plunge their daggers into each other's backs. They vie against each other to supplant the Ark Lector, a position prized for its access to demon lords and their dark gifts. The throne's despotic inheritor is doomed to defend the seat from an unending torrent of assassins and usurpers. Their pattern of betrayal has but one exception. Periodically, the townsfolk band together to combat the demonic hordes birthed from Plague Mort's festering gate. The gate itself is known as the Pit. It's an inky sinkhole that churns within a locked chamber in the Ark Lector's Keep. A mangled steel platform extends directly over the pit, and walls of thick briars surround its swirling edge. A garrison of armored demons, who are known as the Hounds, defend the gate and its keep. Once human vassals who lived outside the keep, the fiends now swear tenuous fealty to Archlector Bex so long as he furthers the interests of the Abyss. Of course, the whims of demon lords 
creep from the dark well to the ears of the Ark Lector, an unwitting puppet who pines for their power. He does their bidding, and in turn, the pit whispers the names of mutinous townfolk and other rising threats. Known dissenters are marched up the platform and cast into the noxious void. Moments later, the pit belches up a demon to serve in the ranks of the hounds. Beyond Blightsteel Keep, there are a couple other locales that are that you can expect to encounter here in Plague Mort, like outlying farms, the desecrated farmlands that lie on the edge of the town, and given the gate town's steady supply of corpses, some farmers have chosen to fertilize their crops with the dead. Lovely. Uh, another locale is the Raised Altar, believed to have once been a temple to the god to a god of learning. Plague Mort's abandoned cathedral has become a monument to malice. Vindic- vindictive townsfolk gather in its shattered stained glass halls to plot against the Ark Lector and to trade cursed items. Another lovely gate town is known as Ribcage whose gate destination is the Nine Hells of Bator. That being said, besides from humanoids, its primary citizen is Devil. And it is ruled by Duchess Zelva Zerkbane. Ribcage is the blackened heart of the Vale of the Spine, which is a jagged range of barren mountains whose peaks curve inward around a smoldering valley. Iron walls encircle the fortified town, and two rows of of cracked dry spires of rock curl over its arid sky, the earthen ribs from which the gate town derives its name. Ribcage's menacing arched gates, festooned with wings like those of a bat, and forged from infernal steel, allude to the power of the Lord of the Nine Hells. That looks... Just that imagery, it's like that's 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 a metal album cover. That's a metal band's album cover for sure. Bound to the Nine Hells and its rigid hierarchy of backstabbing fiends, Ribcage obeys a strict but mobile caste system. Stratified by morality, residents climb the rungs of society through guile, treachery, and devilish deals in order to obtain power at any cost. As a result, the town's lowliest paupers exhibit redeemable qualities, while the nobility are all but soulless, vile individuals who spend their days in decadence until their infernal packs come due. To prevent the gate town from becoming so evil that it experiences the cosmic realignment that we discussed at the top of this section, Duchess Zelva Zerkbane, who is an evil succubus, has enacted a policy of limiting the number of devils in Ribcage. Masquerading as a tiefling arbiter, Duchess Zerkbane has severed unicorn horns that support the soles of her clacking obsidian heels and has a briefcase, which is actually a subservient mimic which snaps open to reveal a drooling maw of jagged teeth, obviously. Her excellency rarely shows her true form and keeps her ability secret, 
preferring to drain her victims through legal proceedings and blackmail. How very lawful evil of her. Uh, Duchess Zerkbane wants nothing more than to plunge Ribcage into the Nine Hells and expects the Lords of the Nine will reward her for this accomplishment. The gate itself within Ribcage is a column of roaring red flame that swirls within the Citadel of Cinders, a walled structure in the center of town. It is surrounded by a silvery ash, which is said to be all that remains of those who challenged the Archdevils and lost. The fiery pillar transports entrance to the desolate wastelands of Avernus, which is, of course, as we know, the war-torn first layer of the Nine Hells. Clever fiends and mages can change the gate's destination, warping the pillar into an icy mirror that leads to the glacial layer of Kania, or a noxious cloud leading to the rotting bog of Minaros. Only Asmodeus, Archduke of the Ninth Layer Nessus, can link the pillar to the lowest layer of the Nine Hells. In addition to the obsidian walls that surround the Citadel of of Cinders, a garrison of devils defend Ribcage's gate. In times of invasion or other wide-scale conflicts, the Duchess can beseech Avernus to deploy infernal armies and weapons of war through the portal. So some noteworthy sites within Ribcage. Uh, There are five districts clustered around the Citadel of Cinders. Buildings are usually constructed from iron or hewn from sharp stones with size and ornamentation varying by wealth and social status. There's also a tavern, a devil-owned tavern known as the Bleeding Horn. The Duchess and her senators, those who uh, preside over the districts, uh, they tolerate its owner, an ice devil named Sparax, um, who you know helps dry-tongued locals quench their thirst with chilled cocktails. You know, keep in mind that you know the the Duchess tries to keep the devil population at a minimum, in uh, within Ribcage, red-hot lava pours from a, one of the stony ribs into the tap room of the Bleeding Horn. Uh, so the heat from this glowing lava falls behind the bar and helps keep drinks coming. Loose-lipped nobles regularly spill secrets and rumors to Sparax, who always keeps one antenna to the ground. Another location is the Gymnasium of Steam. It's located right outside the town walls, and it provides respite to weary travelers who have business in Ribcage, but want to avoid the Duchess and her oligarchs. The resort leverages a network of scalding geysers and terraced volcanic springs to create a paradise of steam rooms, saunas, luxurious baths. Uh, nobles schmooze with mercenaries and swords in the gymnasium's humid, ruby-tiled chambers, plotting the demise or demotion of their neighbors. Meanwhile, invisible imps spy on the resort's patrons on behalf of high-ranking devils gleaning the visitors' deepest secrets when their guards are lowered. And the last gate town we'll discuss, you know, since I I went with, obviously, the Abyss and the Nine Hells of Bator, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you one that's not completely in my wheelhouse. 
Let's talk about the gate town of Excelsior, whose gate destination is the seven heavens of Mount Celestia. In keeping with that, you'll see Celestials living here, and it is ruled by High Chancellor Ferro. And there is a prayer, there's an excerpt of a prayer that's recited in Excelsior that was really cool. It says, O Lightbringer, shine down on us so that we might see our flaws. Chase away the darkness and free us from its jaws. Guide our swords until that fateful day when we bask beneath your rays. So celestials and mortals live in harmony here in Excelsior. And you have flecks of gold and silver sparkling in its radiant streets and towers, which climb ever upward to new heights of good and law. Archons, the devout worshippers, the sort of angels, uh, and paragons of justice convene in floating citadels atop billowing clouds, and crystal falls of holy water cascade over their wispy edge to blessed fountains below. The divinely appointed High Chancellor, Barreau, uh looks after the gate town, very kind-hearted, uh, patient. Uh, she is an, a human archmage, uh, but beneath her calm exterior pumps the heart of a lion with a thunderous roar. The favored cleric of a deity of light, the Sunweaver, Faroe is a the voice of a god and can bring its might to bear. Those who mistake her mercy for weakness don't do so twice. She stands resolute against evil invaders alongside the Cinderwings, a squadron of angelic defenders who heed her prayers. But there is a consequence to Excelsior's bliss. Once one has basked in the light of the seven heavens, Everywhere else seems comparatively worse. Though Archons regularly depart the gate town on some sort of divine errand, Excelsior's privileged mortal residents hesitate to venture past its golden gates where a dull existence awaits them. However, the gate town isn't this perfect paradise. Some scoundrels test the watchfulness of goodly gods and their servants, regardless of how close to them they dwell. So the gate itself, it rests in its tallest towers, the God Strand. It's a lucent alabaster pillar dwarfed only by the spire. The tower is a beacon of virtue impervious to both spell and sword. The God Strand's pinnacle is obscured by soft, luminous clouds at all hours. And its peak isn't visible from any point in the outlands, for the tower protrudes from the base of Mount Celestia. Only one path ascends to the gate, and the tower's defenses harrow those who seek to corrupt it. Twisting staircases line the god strand's interior, branching and crossing endlessly, and its walls are adorned with intricate mosaics that shift to disorientate passengers, trespassers. However, celestials and those with pure hearts or intentions can hear the heavenly portal ringing out like a distant choir of angels. Seven gleaming steps precede the gate itself, hovering and flanked by a pair of unflinching warden archons. And some noteworthy sights, uh, we got chandelier, like motes of soft flame, gleaming structures orbit the god strand at varying heights, held aloft in the palms of feathery clouds by the faith of their devoted residents. These are collectively referred to as the chandelier, and this district mainly consists of picket keeps, which are strongholds governed by pious champions of justice and mercy. Another is Zephyr Sables, 
which is a floating Pegasus ranch that is run by a human knight named Cassandra Canius. And she will lend, her, lend. it doesn't even say that she rents them out, she lends her flying steeds to worthy riders. Interesting. So now that we've talked about all the lore stuff, let's talk about a little bit about, about the mechanics before we wrap up. So um, that, this is another weakness of Planescape 5e. Uh, there's not a whole lot to munch on when it comes to um, when it comes to mechanics. Like, you know, there, there are no subclasses. Um, there are no new species. There are only uh, two backgrounds, a, a handful of feats that are associated with the backgrounds, and then just a couple of spells. So the backgrounds themselves, the first one is Gate Warden. You spent a significant amount of time somewhere influenced by intense planar forces or a portal to another plane of existence, such as one of the aforementioned gate towns in the Outlands. So you're accustomed to experiences that would leave others reeling in terror or enraptured by otherworldly beauty. You're as comfortable dealing with celestials and fiends as you are the vendors in town. Uh, the skill proficiencies are persuasion and survival. And you also get uh, two languages of your choice, although they do recommend abyssal, celestial, or infernal. And then there's the planar philosopher. You subscribe to a philosophy that seeks to understand the nature of the planes or some other hidden truth of the multiverse. You draw strength from your conviction and perhaps a network of like-minded thinkers, such as one of the factions of Sigil that we mentioned, or perhaps a faction of Sigil that you create your own using the Tabletop Journeys Traveler's Guide to Factions. So in your travels, you explore the depths of your understanding and spread your philosophy wherever you go. Uh, skill proficiencies are Arcana and then whatever skill is associated with your faction. And then again, two languages of your choice. And the feats, one of which is called the Scion of the Outer Plains, it basically gives you a um, the ability to cast a cantrip depending on what um, which outer plane you want to associate with. Um, the chaotic outer plane gives you da- and also gives you damage resistance as well to um, you know a particular type of damage. So chaotic outer plane gives you damage resistance to poison, and you can also cast minor illusion. The evil outer plane gives you necrotic damage resistance and allows you to cast chill touch. Good outer plane gives you damage resistance to uh, radiant damage, and you can cast Sacred Flame, whereas the Lawful Outer Plane allows you to cast Guidance and gives you force damage resistance. And finally, the Outlands gives you psychic damage resistance, and you can cast Mage Hand. And then at fourth level, you get um, there's a few different feats that you can attain. Um, first of which, um, all you, the only prerequisite is that you be fourth level, of course, and that you also have the scion of the outer planes feet. And it's called planar wanderer. You draw on the forces of the multiverse to survive cosmic extremes and to traverse its infinite realms, granting you these benefits. Um, you get planar adaptation, which, uh, after you finish a long rest, you gain resistance to either acid, cold, or fire damage. It's your choice until you finish your next long rest. So that's pretty pretty great if you knew if you if you know like if you're on uh kanya if you're on the, like a glacial plane of hell uh then maybe cold damage being, being resistant to cold damage might be uh beneficial uh, you also get portal cracker your experience with portals allows you to open them without a portal key 
As an action, you can concentrate on a portal that you're aware of that is within five feet of yourself and make a DC 20 intelligence arcana check. On a failed check, you take 3d8 psychic damage and you can't use this benefit again until you finish a long rest. On a successful check, you can force the portal open or close for one hour. For that duration, the portal doesn't respond to its portal key unless a creature employing the key succeeds on their own DC 20 intelligence arcana check. And then finally, you get portal sense. You know the direction of the last planar portal you used while you and the portal are on the same plane of existence. Moreover, as an action, you can detect the location of any portals within 30 feet of you that aren't behind total cover. And again, once you detect a portal with this action, you can't do it again until you finish a long rest. And then the other feats, it depends on which um, which plane you want to align yourself with. You know, there's a different, there's a plane or there's a feat for the lawful outer or what, what alignment rather you prescribe to. There is a lawful outer plane uh, feat. There is an evil outer plane feat, a chaotic outer plane feat. And then there's um, one for the outlands as well. And a good outer planes feat. They each do their own thing. They all have their different benefits. Like um, for example, the lawful outer plane feat is called agent of order. And once per turn, when you damage a creature that you can see within 60 feet of yourself, uh, you can deal an extra 1d8 force damage on the target, and it must make a wisdom saving throw, or um, it gets uh, you know, ensnared by uh, spectral bindings. Um, the good uh, outer plane feat, Righteous Heritor, Heritor. Uh, in addition to increasing ability score by one, which all the feats do, by the way, uh, you can cast Soothe Pain. When you or a creature within 30 feet of you takes damage, you can use your reaction, your reaction, which is wild, uh, to reduce that damage by 1d10 plus your proficiency bonus. Uh, and you can use this an equal number of times to your proficiency bonus um, until you finish a long rest. And finally, uh, let's talk about these spells. So you've got Gate Seal, which is a fourth level spell. Uh, you fortify the fabric of the planes in a 30-foot cube you see within the range. Within that area, portals close and cannot be opened for the duration. Uh, at higher levels, when you cast a spell using a, six, a spell slot of 6th level or higher, the spell lasts until dispelled, whereas it only takes, whereas the usual duration is 24 hours. And then there's Warp Sense, which we mentioned earlier in the episode. It's a second level divination spell. For the duration, you sense the presence of portals, even inactive ones, within 30 feet of yourself. If you detect a portal in this way, you can use your action to study it, making a DC 15 ability check using your spellcasting ability. On a successful check, you learn the destination plane of the portal and what portal key it requires. And then the spell ends. On a fail check, you learn nothing and you can't study that portal again. Uh, using this particular spell until you cast it again. The spell can penetrate most barriers, but is blocked by pretty much one foot of stone or one inch of common metal or three feet of wood or dirt. So there you have, that is a basic run through of not even everything that Planescape 5e has to offer because there's a whole bestiary that we didn't get a chance to talk about. But like I said at the top of the show, uh, I it would have been almost impossible to improve upon the original Planescape. But do I think 
this is a worthy addition to you know the D and D game that we have now. Yes, absolutely. I think I think the folks over in the design department and the creative department of D and D, I think they I think they knocked it out of the park this time. I think this time they they learned from the mistakes of Spelljammer and they they came correct essentially. And so I'm very excited to to dive more into this. Very excited to run a Planescape campaign. I'm very excited to run a character with some of these feats and some of these backgrounds. Not even like the, the it says that the the backgrounds of prereq is the Planescape campaign setting. But come on, I want to run one of these characters like in Forgotten Realms or something. I want them to be able to do really cool stuff that you know your average Forgotten Realms character hasn't seen before. So. That's what I'm excited about. I hope you're excited too. And I thank you for listening. I hope that you I hope that you enjoyed, you know, the the review of Planescape. And I hope that if you were on the fence that, you know, this kind of pushes you over and and you give it a try. Well, that being said, thank you so much for listening. My name is Sergio. Fare thee well, dear listener, and until we meet again, may all your twenties be natural. Thank you for listening to the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast. If you've enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at D&D Lorecast. Or jumping into the Robots Radio Discord to chat more with us about Dungeons & Dragons. We'll see you soon. Listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows for interesting people. Check out all the shows at robotsradio.com.